It is good to gather together and worship the Lord um, and to be reminded uh, of his uh, beauty in creation and of his power in creation. And that's what we're looking at uh, today is uh, over the last um, couple summers we've been taking oh, five, six weeks each summer to look at some of the basics of Christian faith and uh, last summer we did six or seven on um, various topics, who is God, um, uh, who is Jesus, what is the Trinity, and uh, we've got uh, three planned for this, this summer, uh, today, and then the next uh, two weeks in August, and it's an opportunity for us to, to kind of talk about uh, what are some general things, um, some basic things that cr- form the Christian faith, and our topic this morning is, um, is creation. And uh, I will tell you, my approach today is going to be almost entirely biblical. Uh, there are lots of different things that we could talk about here, science versus creation, and young earth versus old earth, and um, just any number of things that arise in one's hearts and minds when we start talking about creation. Um, those are not my fields of expertise. Um, sometimes I wonder if even the Bible is my field of expertise, um, but I, I, I go to the Bible because I believe it's God's Word. And so what we're going to look at this morning is biblical texts and biblical um, words given to us by God that help us understand uh, what we should believe about creation. And uh, so that's where we're going to spend our time. And there are lots of materials, lots of places you can go to find um, responses, theological responses um, to discussions out there. And uh, we have resources in our library um, but again, this morning, we're going to focus um, primarily on some biblical texts. Father, we come now to worship you around your word. Uh, we confess just our, our continual need of you to help us. This is not a normal book. Um, it is words and it is uh, ideas and it is stories. But um, it's not just normal words, ideas, and stories. This is the eternal word of God. There's some quality about it which makes it living and makes it eternal. It is divine as well. It comes from you, and we are sinful, and we sometimes have just not a clue what it is you're trying to get across to us because of the own hardness of our hearts and our own sinfulness. So I pray even this morning that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word, that you would open our minds to understand things that maybe we've been resisting, that you would open our hearts and our affections to love the God of the word and to love the God who has created this world that we have um, been privileged to inhabit. Father, I pray once again this morning that you would make this book live, that you would make it live in my life afresh this week and even today, and that you would make this book live in the lives of your people gathered here this morning. Help us to speak rightly about you, to think correctly about you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a, just an amazing world. It is a world that feems, feeds us. It's a world that warms us. It's a world that clothes us. It's a world that stimulates us. It's a world that dwarfs us. It's a world that confounds us. It can as quickly fill us with awe and wonder as it can with sheer terror. We live in it. We search through it. We sail over it. We fly around it, we explore out into it, and for all this we take so much for granted, we still do not come close to understanding either its simplicity nor its complexity. 
According to scriptures, creation is a gift of God to us. It comes from a loving creator. From the bodies we inhabit, to the air that we breathe, to the sun that we bask in, to the food that we eat, to the flowers that we pick, to the water that we drink, to the ground that we walk on, to the pets that we love, to the pleasures that we enjoy, to the destinations that we go to on vacation. Life is filled with good gifts given to us to steward and enjoy by a loving God who created it all. One theologian talked about the doctrine of creation and he simply defined it this way. It says this, that God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and he created it in order to glorify himself. Once more, that God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and he created it to glorify himself. When we think about the the Bible and creation, then what are some of the things that the Bible says about creation? There are so many verses that we can turn to. I was thinking of this, um, uh, if you've ever bought a car, you you might, I don't know, you buy a blue car. And for the next uh, six months, all you see is blue cars of the kind that you bought. Because you're sort of thinking about it, it's what's in your mind. Well, the last month as I've been reflecting on, on coming to this uh, this topic of what is creation, I've obviously been thinking about it, and as I've been going through my devotions and uh, just reading the scriptures, I have been amazed at how frequently the Bible reminds us that this is our Father's world, that He created it, that He made it, and that He formed it. As I think about that, the, the Bible does not start with an apology. It does not start with an argument. The Bible just starts with a very clear proposition and statement. In the beginning, God. And if you follow that verse a little bit longer, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You jump across to the New Testament in the beginning of John's Gospel, and you read there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Then you jump ahead to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, and it says there, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Three very distinct, very clear statements about God's involvement in the creation of this world. And I think if, if there's any place to start, it's just to be reminded that right off the bat, we are dealing with a person. The Bible starts with a person. And that's in clear contrast to evolutionary theory and other theories of, of uh, beginnings which deny the biblical view of creation. They begin with impersonal matter and energy, and they are never able to answer the question of how it got there or what it means once it was there. The Bible, though, in contrast, begins with a personal God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think it's also significant that the Bible begins with creation in itself. The first couple chapters of the Bible um, set the whole tone for everything that's to come. And it's not by accident, and nor is it a matter of unimportance, I think, that the first two chapters are dedicated to God revealing himself to us as creator. He's telling us something that is very important for our understanding of the world in which we live and for the way that we are to relate to him. It's to understand that this world just did not just come into being by chance. It did not just happen. There is a God who made it. There is a God who guides it. There is a God to whom we're accountable to. And so the first two chapters of, of, of Genesis remind us very clearly of the importance of understanding this notion of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves. God created man in his own image. On the seventh day, God rested from all the work he had done. And the summary statement of creation is Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Unmistakable affirmation of Scripture of how this world came into being. Let me give you just a few other ones, and there are numerous ones that I've indicated, that also build this truth or buttress this throughout Scripture. John, or Isaiah 45, 12. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched forth the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. Isaiah 45, 18. For the Lord is God, and he created the heavens and the earth and put everything in its place. He made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of empty chaos. I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other God. Isaiah forty four twenty four. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer and Creator. I am the Lord who made all things. I alone stretched out the heavens. Who was with me when I made the earth? That in itself is a fascinating portion of Scripture that we could spend some time on by itself. It just reminds us that God is distinct from creation. That God existed before this world ever came into being. And He was alone in this world. He was perfectly content and sufficient in this world. But there was nobody that was there with Him to witness creation. Who was with me when I made the earth? Matthew 19 verse 4, when Jesus is responding to some individuals who are questioning Him about uh, divorce. One of the things that Jesus says is, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? A clear affirmation of Jesus of creation. You jump to the book of Mark at the near the end of Mark in chapter 13 when Jesus is talking about the end of this world and um, the tribulation that's going to come on the earth. And he says, in those days, there will be such tribulation as, not, as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and will never be. Again, the affirmation from Jesus' words and from his lips that God had created has created this world. One more, and we referenced this a couple weeks back when we were looking at Acts chapter 17. As Paul begins to to talk to people who have never heard about Jesus, never heard about the gospel, where does he start? He starts with creation. He simply says this, as they were worshiping an unknown God, he says, let me tell you about that unknown God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. So we find this, uh, this affirmation throughout Scripture that God made this world, He formed this world, and everything in it. What does it tell us about God, though? We, we know that God has created, but what sort of things does it tell us about God? Well, we certainly affirmed by reading Genesis 1-1 that it tells us that simply God is. In the beginning, God. There's no explanation. There's no, um, no uh, further Uh, scripture given to us it just simply tells us that God is it also tells us that God made everything that is non-God it tells us that he is a talking God there's a numerous times in Genesis chapter 1 where it says and God said and it came to be and God said and it came to pass so we understand that God is a speaking God if we were to read that whole passage in Genesis 1 we would find that After each day, God says, and it was good, and it was good. And at the end of it, he says, and it was very good. 
As God looked at all that he had made, he affirms the goodness of creation. Some specific things, though, that uh, creation tells us about God. It, it tells us about his power. This morning we sang that song, um, I sing the mighty power of God that make the mountains rise. Um, and there's a, there's a line in there which I never knew before, and I never thought I would um, say moonshine in church. Um, but there's a line in there where he says he causes the moon to shine bright, or the moon shines bright. And uh, yeah, uh, it's my sick humor. My kids groan all the time when I say that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, um, that hymn reminds us of the mighty power of God in creation. And we see that in at least a couple of ways. The, the first is simply the mighty power of God in the way that he created. I've referenced this already. He created with the spoken word. That's absolutely stunning. The, the, the power of God is so great, it is so mighty, it is so strong, there is so much authority behind it, that God speaks something, and it comes into existence. That is power, loved ones. And so we see the power of God displayed in the way that the universe came into being. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us that the sun is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, not only does creation come into existence by the spoken word of God, but it is sustained by the upholding work of God, or word of God. And so we see the power of God displayed in creation through the very word of God. Psalm 148, 1 following says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. Psalm 33, 6 and 9. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by His breath of, or by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. For He spoke, and it came to be, he commanded, and it stood firm. The, com- the, the creation of this world reminds us of the very power of God and the spoken authoritative word of God. But I think it also reminds us of the power of God just in his power to keep this world going and his power to dis- sustain this world. And Romans chapter 1, verse 19 reminds us a little bit about this, where it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we see the power of God displayed in the fact that creation is maintained. In the fact that the universe continues to unfold as it should. In the the fact that this world unfolds as it should. On Friday night we were down in Victoria having a a picnic with um, a cousin of Kathy's. And they had come all the way from uh, Washington. They live in Washington, D.C., just outside of Washington, D.C. And um, his wife was telling us about this um, one bug that appeared this summer. And this bug appears for only four months every 18 years. For the 18 years, it goes underground. I don't know what it does underground, but it comes out for four weeks. It does its thing, and then it goes back underground. I'd like to live like that sometimes. You know, like the three times and then that'd be heaven. Um, but the power of God that is at work maintaining that bug for, for 18 years as it rests underground. 
That's just one part of this vast creation that God makes that he sustains by his power. And when 18 years comes along, he says, okay, it's time to get up, guys. They get up and they do their thing. So we see that as we look at creation around us, it very clearly displays the power of God. We see it in lightning. We see it in storms. How many of us go out to the ocean on stormy days just so we can watch the waves crash? Beloved, that is the power of God stirring up the water. And so we see the power of God displayed in creation. Another thing that we learn about God or we see revealed about God in creation is His wisdom and His understanding. Psalm 104 verse 24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. You turn to Jeremiah 10 verse 12 and it says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, by his understanding he stretched out the heavens. So well, what does that wisdom mean? What does it mean that God uh, is, a, is a God of wisdom? Well, if you want to, you can take and turn with me to Psalm 104. And I just will go through a, a few of the things that the psalmist reveals that, that help us understand the wisdom of God. How it is that creation reveals the wisdom of God. Uh, the first thing that we might look at is, is verse 2, where he says, He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Many of you have been out in these summer nights as, as they've been clear nights and you've, you've looked at the stars and, and the way that they continue to travel and the way that they move and the way they can be used as guides and the way that it's one galaxy after another galaxy after another galaxy and the wisdom of God that has stretched that out and has set those stars in place and that keeps their movements predictable so that God, ships can be guided by it and all sorts of things can happen according to their patterns. You go a little bit farther and it says that he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wing. Verse 5, he set the earth on its foundation so it should not be moved. Think about that. God has taken this world in which we live and he has established a place for it. He has established an axis on which it should turn and it does not move. And it turns at exactly the right speed. It rotates at exactly the right speed around the sun. It is situated in exactly the right place in this universe. God has set the foundations of this world so that it would not be moved. Does that not take wisdom to know the precise speed, the precise distances, the precise angle at which the world rotates? He has set the world on its place. You go a little bit farther, um, and he talks there about the mountains rise and the valleys sank down to the place that you had pointed for them. The mountains are the exact height that they should be to create the kinds of um, uh, influences that they need to. The valleys are the right depths so that they do the things that valleys are supposed to do. In his wisdom, he has set them up. He goes on, he says, you make springs gush forth in the valley. They flow between the hills to give drink to every beast of the field and the wise wild donkeys quench their thirst. In other words, in the wisdom of God, he's made valleys and springs that that come up so that animals can find drink and so that they don't don't die of of, of thirst. Um, And it's his wisdom that has placed those and has caused them to bubble up at the right time. It says in the next verse there, in verse 12, besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell, for they sing among the branches. The wisdom of God in the singing of birds. One of the things that I enjoy most is when I get up early and I head out to my study and I just sit there often for a few minutes and just listen 
to the birds. And the wisdom of God in, 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 in some of those songs as they attract a maid and others of those songs as they just extol the glory of God as they just um, whistle and sing because of the warmth of the sun on their backs. The wisdom of God that gives song to the birds. We see the wisdom of God where he talks a little bit later. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he might bring forth food from the garden. The wisdom of God in, 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 in the grasses that grow that the deer eat and the elk eat and that our cattle eat. The wisdom of God that causes our gardens to grow where we've got vegetables and flowers and just the amazing intricacies of God that takes seeds and, and, and uses water and, and causes those things to grow. Wine to gladden our hearts and oil to make our face shine. The trees are watered by the Lord abundantly. In them the birds make their nests. In other words, God has designed the trees in order that the birds can function and have their nest. The incredible wisdom of God to figure all that stuff out. And to make sure all that stuff happens according to plan. Verse 20, you make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about. You know, there seems that there's more activity going on in this world when we sleep than we're awake. And it's God that manages all that. It's God that has created all that. He's God that's designed what those animals do and where they go and where they eat and where they sleep and what they do at night. The bats that, even the wisdom of God in the bats that fly around at night. He goes on to say, man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. And then this again, oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you made them all. Beloved, when you look out in this world and you look around in creation, not only do you see the power of God displayed, but you see the wisdom and the understanding of God displayed and the amazing complexity and the the perfect functioning of this world. We see his glory. We see the glory of God displayed. Psalm uh, 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's what creation does. You, you look at the skies, you look at the trees, and it, it tells you something about the majesty of God, about the splendor of God, about the weightiness of God, about the, the glory of God. You want to know what God is like, you want to know how powerful He is, you want to know how majestic He is, just take a walk through the forest for a day. Take a day out on the water. Fly in a helicopter for, for a few hours across the the mountains, and you'll see the glory of God displayed in ways that will just blow your mind. And so we look around in creation and we see the power of God, and we see the wisdom of God, we see the glory of God. There are so many other things, but those are three, just to let your mind think a little bit. What does creation tell us about ourselves? There are lots, but there's two things that I just want to pull up for us to think about. And these are why it's so important, beloved, that we understand biblical doctrines and what they teach because there is so much truth wrapped up in each of these doctrines. So creation, first of all, what does it tell us about ourselves? It tells us that we have dignity and worth. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. That is a stunning piece of information for you and I to understand. We have worth and we have dignity, every single human being, because they have been created in the image and the likeness of God. What a complete and utter contrast to what theories that 
describe the, the comings of this world in the absence of God. One individual said, essentially, mankind has only two choices. Either we have evolved out of the slime and can be explained strictly in the materialistic sense, meaning that we are made out of nothing but material, or we have been made after a heavenly pattern. Let me just be negative for a moment. It's important to understand the incredibly destructive forces that the evolutionary theory has had on modern thinking. This is a quote from uh, a fellow I wrote. wrote, If in fact life was not created by God, and if human beings in particular are not created by God or responsible to Him, but are simply the result of random occurrences in the universe, then of what significance is human life? Think about that for a moment. If we are just the product of random circumstances... What gives us significance and meaning in life? We have no purpose. We have, we have no future. We, we just happen to come into being for no reason other than some atoms happen to collide randomly and here we are. Versus a view which the Bible teaches that we have been created in the image and the likeness of God. That helps us look at ourselves and others in a completely different light. He goes on to say, We are merely the product of matter plus time plus chance. And so to think that we have any eternal importance or really any importance at all in the face of an immense universe is simply to delude ourselves. Honest reflection on this notion should lead people to a profound sense of despair. In other words, the notion that we are just the product of randomness. John MacArthur in another point uh, puts it this way. The simple fact that of the matter is that all the philosophical fruits of Darwinism, uh, just let me help you there, the philosophical fruits, though, those are the actions that come from ideas. I have said so many times theology matters. I have said so many times it matters what you think because how you think will have a direct influence on how you behave. You can't trick yourself. And so what he's saying is there are philosophical fruits of Darwinism. In other words, there are actions that have resulted from thinking that there is no God and we just happened to evolve to where we are now. So he goes on, he says, they have been negative, ignoble, and destructive to the very fabric of society. Not one of the major 20th century revolutions led by post-Darwinian philosophies ever improved or ennobled any society. Instead, the chief social and political legacy of Darwinian thought is a full spectrum of evil tyranny with Marx-inspired communism at one extreme and Nietzsche-inspired fascism at the other. The moral catastrophe, notice the words he chooses, the moral catastrophe that has disfigured modern Western society is also directly traceable to Darwinism and the rejection of the early chapters of Genesis. In other words, What he's saying again is that when you understand creation from a biblical point of view, that it gives dignity and worth to human life. If you believe in randomness or that we just came as the result of evolution, there is no inherent dignity or worth in coming from muck or coming from nothing. Creation fills us with dignity, purpose, and meaning. If you remove God from the beginning, and we have to be consistent here, beloved, If you remove God from the beginning, then you ought to also remove him from the present and from the future. You can't say, well, I don't want God in the beginning, but I do want God now and I do want him when I die. It doesn't work like that. We have to be consistent. The God of the beginning is the God of the present is the God of the future. 
And so if you remove God from the beginning, then he's gone from life and there is no anchor to hold our life down. No one knows, wrote Leslie Paul, what time, though it will be soon enough by astronomical clocks. The Mayan calendar is right, it's 2012. The lonely planet will cool. All life will die, all mind will cease, and it will be as if it never happened. That, to be honest, is the goal to which evolution is traveling. That is the benevolent end of the furious living and furious dying. All life is no more than a match struck in, a dark, in the dark and blown out again. The final result is to deprive it completely of meaning. Another uh, couple quotes um, from Carl Sagan in December 1996, less than three weeks before Carl Sagan died. He was interviewed by Ted Koppel on Nightline. Sagan knew he was dying, and Koppel asked him, Dr. Sagan, do you have any pearls of wisdom that you would like to give the human race? Sagan replied, We live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star that is one of 400 billion other stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of other galaxies which make up the universe, which may be one of a very large number, perhaps an infinite number of other universes. That is a perspective on human life and our culture that is well worth pondering. What despair, what purposelessness, how devoid of meaning. And then Carl Sagan, in a book published near the end of his life, wrote, Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Beloved, isn't that sad? There is no evidence that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. There is evidence, and it's here, and it's in the world that God has created to says, yes, I care about you. Yes, I know where this world is going. Yes, I have purpose and meaning for your life, and you will only find it in me through Jesus Christ. So we find meaning and purpose in life when we embrace the biblical doctrine of creation. Finally, What are some implications for us? And I've got about five of these and we'll work our way quickly through them. As we approach the the doctrine of creation as as Christians, as those seeking to wrestle with it, what are the implications for us? Well, the first is simply the implication of faith. At some point, we we have to choose to believe one way or another. We have to choose to believe one theory or another theory. We have to choose to believe one explanation or another explanation. Because in the end of the day, there is no scientific experiment that can be set up to recreate creation. And so, whatever theory we embrace, whatever explanation of the origins we embrace, there is a measure of faith that is involved in accepting it. The Bible clearly tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith, Now, this is not just a a blind faith. This is not a, a faith void of any reasonableness. But by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which appeared were not made of things that are not seen. There is a point, loved ones, at which we have to say, I see a lot out there. I think there has to be something behind it. This world is an amazing place. We read the biblical description of how it all came into being and we say, yeah, that that makes sense to me. And so I will put my faith in God who created this world out of nothing. So we have to start with faith. 
We have to believe what God says about himself and what God says about his world. A second implication of believing in creation is ethics. Is, is, is morals and, and, and right and wrong. One person wrote, if all of life can be explained by evolutionary theory apart from God, and if there is no God who created, then there is no supreme judge to hold us morally accountable. For there are mo- no moral absolutes in human life, and people's moral ideas are only subjective preferences, good for them perhaps, but not to be imposed on others. In fact, in such a case, the only forbidden thing is to say that one knows that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. That's what we see all around us. That when you believe in creation, when you believe that God created this world, then you believe that there is somebody who we are accountable to. We believe that there is somebody who calls the shots. We believe that there is somebody who says, this is right and this is wrong. It gives us a foundation and a fabric for ethics, for how we live as a society. What happens when you remove God from the picture? And, and you just say, well, we just happen to appear by, by forces, or by material forces, and with no outside intervention. Well, where do ethics come from? Where does morality come from? Well, it comes from within. And so we say, well, I think this is right, and somebody else say, well, I think this is right. And there's, there's, there's nothing outside of ourselves to which we're accountable for, and so there's chaos. And as the book of Judges tells us, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, The consequences are disastrous. And so by believing in the doctrine of creation, you are believing in a creator who made this world to whom we are accountable to, and therefore it matters how we live. I think that's one of the reasons why evolutionists want to get rid of God is because then they can live however they want. There's nobody they're accountable to. There's nobody that they they have to say this is right and this is wrong. And they might not be the way that they think, but that's the way that it comes out in their lives. You just see some of the horrid um, uh, results of that kind of thinking in fellows like Peter Singer and some of the things that he proposes when you take God out of the picture of human life. Worship. Worship. Creation draws our attention to the glory of God, to his might, his power, his control, his imagination, his wisdom, his providence, his governance, his, his sustenance of this world. And so when we walk through creation, when we fly over creation, when we dive under creation, what should happen in us is we shouldn't worship the fish or worship the trees or worship the stars. We should worship the God who made all of that and who created all of that and who sustains all of that. We should say, wow, God, you're amazing. I praise you for your power. I praise you for your glory. Why do we pray when we eat? We pray when we eat because we acknowledge that everything that comes to us on our plate has been given to us by God who makes stuff grow and who gives people wisdom to harvest it and has given us the the ability to transport it to do whatever we do. And so we thank God as we eat because he's provided us with food. And so we glorify God. We worship God. What does Revelation 4.11 say? Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and power for you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. Heaven worships God because of his creation. That should be one of the natural impulses of us when we begin to figure out that God made this world, that God created us with dignity, purpose, and meaning, that God sustains it in the way that he does. It should, it should drive us to praise and adoration and thankfulness to a God who has done just such brilliant things for us. Brilliant creator, 
you're saying that. What about personal comfort? And I'm just pulling out, there are so many implications, but what about personal comfort? Isaiah 43, 1, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you. So again, the affirmation, God made me, God formed you. Now listen, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Why? Because I made the rivers. Because I made the fires. Because I made the water. Because this is my world. And if I say don't touch him, it won't touch him. And so we cast ourselves for comfort to a God who sustains and manages this creation. I was visiting a lady in hospital this past week down in Victoria who has been struggling for over five years with leukemia. And uh, she'd just received uh, another uh, chemo treatment about two days earlier and clearly weak and strong. But you know, as we chatted away, um, she says, I've got strength for today. She says, I can make it through today. And then she went on to quote that verse, um, from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Loved ones, when you're at the end of your rope, when you don't have any more strength, when you don't think you can make it through another day, where do we turn to? We turn to God who sustains and upholds this world by his power and his might. And we say, God, if you can handle this world, if you can manage this world, you can certainly give me the strength that I need to make it through the toughness that I'm facing this very moment. Isaiah 40, 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created this who brings out their host by number calling them all by name by the greatness of his might because he is strong in power not one is missing why do you say O Jacob and speak O Israel my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by God isn't that what we say sometimes God you're not you don't care about me God you can't see me God my prayers aren't getting anywhere God there's no connection between us anymore well what's Isaiah's response to them have you not seen Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, God who made all of this, who sustains all of this, is surely and still sustaining you even though you might not be aware of his presence. Huge comfort in casting ourselves at the feet and before the one who has made the heavens and the earth. We often quote that verse um, in Philippians 4.8, the peace of God um, will pass, uh, which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That peace of God is one that refers to the peace, of, the peace that God has as he manages this universe, as he keeps it under control. Loved ones, there is great comfort that comes when we cast ourselves at the feet of God who manages this whole earth. The final thing that I would probably say about this um, is, is simply um, what does creation have to do with us? Salvation. This is a huge implication. When you deny Genesis 1, 1 2, and 3, and when you say they're not literal, when you say they're, they're just metaphorical, when you say they're just um, stories that, that are myths that have come up, then you really erase the whole foundation of redemption. Because, beloved, our redemption is rooted in historical, real Adam and Eve. Because the Bible tells us that just as Adam and Adam was our representative, and in him all sinned, so in Christ we have a representative, and in him we have life if we turn to him in faith. The connection between the two is absolutely necessary to maintain. 
And if you get rid of a literal Adam, then you get rid of a literal Christ. Read Romans chapter 5 and you'll find that argument made. So understanding creation and believing in creation is absolutely crucial for salvation. To put our faith in Jesus Christ who is the second Adam who came to save us from our sins. I was uh, reading in a couple different places um, over the last couple weeks of Francis Schaeffer. And um, they were chatting with Schaeffer and uh, he said, uh, he made a comment along the lines, he said, if I had an hour in a plane with somebody, he said, I would take the first 55 minutes to talk to him about creation and the last five minutes to talk to him about salvation. Isn't that what we find Paul doing in Acts chapter 17? To people who never heard the gospel, to people who never heard the Bible. What did he do? He starts with God who made the heavens and the earth. And he works his way to the implications of all of that. And then he says, repent. Loved ones, it is so important that we understand and we believe in creation as it's described by God in his word. Creation was made and lovingly prepared for us by a lovingly and personal he, not an impersonal, unloving it. What difference does creation make in our lives? All the difference in the world for our faith, for our salvation, and for our worship.